You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, we are, as ever, when two or three are gathered together, in the presence of the Lord himself. So we're not just gathered here. This is a lecture room, and it makes sometimes feel like a lecture, but we're not here for a lecture. We're here to meet, to encounter, to hear from the living God himself. And as a way of beginning and a way of summing up yesterday, I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand again and for us all to say Psalm 33, which is a wonderful expression of the sovereignty of God. I want you to be aware of who God is as he speaks to us through his word. He is speaking to all of us this morning. He is speaking to you as we say his word together. And I'm going to do it in a strange way as well, and uh, we'll come to that. I'll explain to you in a moment. But before we do that, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are here speaking to us in your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we pray now, Heavenly Father, that you will teach us by your spirit. We pray that you will move our hearts so that we may be embracing your word by faith and that this will show itself in fruitfulness of life, live for you, so that we may be changed from one degree of glory to another. And so we commit ourselves into your gracious hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to invite you to say Psalm 33, which will be on the wall behind me, not the screen behind me, but the wall behind me. Uh, But I'm going to do it in this way. I think what we'll do... Oh, yes, I can... Yes, I was going to divide you into two sections, but we can do that in the way God did. We can do it with men and women, can't we? That's one way of doing it. Okay, so I'm going to invite the the ladies amongst us to say verse 1 and the men to say verse 2. The ladies to say verse 3, the men to say verse 4. Not that women are odd. Um, I don't mean that at all. Uh, But the women can have the odd numbers, the men can have the even numbers, and we'll say Psalm 33 together responsively. This is a tradition in the church that has gone on for many years, but as we speak to each other uh, from the psalm. I don't know if it'll work. We'll see. Uh, But it's God's word, so it doesn't matter. We'll be listening to what God says to us. So Psalm 33, please stand, and we'll say the psalm together as a reminder that we're in the presence of God himself. And if you're ready, and the sisters can start. Rejoice! <laughs> Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to the tapestry and harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the streets with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right. And all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water and the sea into the deep. He puts the depths into storehouses. But the whole earth 
fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations, he thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven, he observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all, he considers all their works. The king is not saved by a large army, a warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false strength for safety. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. To rescue them from death and to keep them alive in heaven. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. That is the end. <laughs> Sorry, I was waiting for it. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Okay. Uh, uh, just keep standing. Why don't we do it properly and finish by all saying verses 20 to 22 together. Ready? We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord. For we put our hope in you. Amen. Now, please be seated. You very, very kindly, and uh, a number of you at least, very kindly uh, sat and listened to me go on about all this for about uh, 45 minutes yet last night. But all we needed was that psalm. Uh, it says it all, doesn't it? Well, almost all. It's a most wonderful exposition of the sovereignty of God. Today we turn to the second of the, the uh, talks, and it's called The Holy God, The Holy God. And uh, already we've begun with the passage that I'm particularly looking at today, but not exclusively, namely Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God and, and hears the words about the holiness of God. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Uh, before we turn to Isaiah 6, though, let's think about ourselves for a moment and our, where we are. Um, where we are is, uh, well, we're basically part of, I suppose, two stories. Uh, I don't mean two stories on a house, but two narratives, two stories. And your question is, which story are you part of? Which narrative are you working in? Uh, for we have the Christian story, the biblical story, which we will hear, which we heard last night, which we will hear in a moment. But we also have the secular story, the, the unbelieving story, the God is dead story, into which we, at least in the Western world, live. Um, and that story is dominated by the, by the longing for human freedom. Uh, it goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden and uh, the knowledge of good and evil. We will make the rules. Thank you, God. We will be free because we desire to be free. And so this lust, this longing to be free, is uh, very prominent in the secular world in which we live. Uh, it's based on the idea that human beings are basically 
able to make that choice, that human beings are basically good. Uh, I remember hearing uh, some years ago now uh, a Sydney uh, uh, politician, his name will remain uh, uh, secret to me unless you purchase this wonderful book for five dollars, five dollars uh, on the bookstore, uh, and, uh, it's, and he said this, the old regime of telling people how to live their lives, whether you're a government or a church, is running out of time. Australians want to be free. They want to have their independence. They want to have choice. Notice how freedom is now choice. Hmm, is that so? Now, there are some people, he said, there are some people, and listen to what some people do, ready, who distrust human nature and believe that people won't make right decisions. No. There are people who distrust human nature. The funny thing was he said this and he had the keys to his house in his pocket and the keys to his car over there because he believes that if he doesn't lock them up, people will come and steal things. He doesn't trust human, human nature. None of us trust human nature, but we say we do. We say people are basically good. That's what he's saying. Human beings are basically good, and that is why uh, uh, people will make the right decisions. We, he said, we are on the side of respecting individual judgment and respecting individual choices. How come? Because we believe that people are basically Good. But is that so? Is that so? It's interesting to see the, uh, I think this decided to go down a fraction. Is that right? No, maybe not. Um, it's interesting to see how people, uh, what are the, uh, the signs of a society which has said no to God, we will make our own choices. And as I may have mentioned last night, I can't remember, one of the great signs, yes I did, was that we're living in what has been called the age of anxiety. It's like, um, I don't know about you, but I feel very, very cautious when I get to a cliff edge. Uh, I so Even just to think about going to a cliff edge makes my palms sweaty. Uh, vertigo, fear of falling, fear of heights. Anxiety is a sort of spiritual vertigo. Uh, it is jumping out of the plane without a parachute. Uh, it has no rules, no laws, no... Well, we don't want rules. We are independent. We make right decisions. We are good people. And then you jump out of the plane without a parachute. No rules. You've got to make the rules up. Thank you very much. How successful are you going to be? And this deep anxiety, which doctors and other people in, this, in our community have commented on, is a vain attempt to fill the spiritual gap left by saying that we have no God and therefore we make the rules. But you see, the rules we make are not so good. And do we keep them because we are evil? The idea that we are based on human goodness is a futile, fatuous, stupid idea. It goes against all your experience. You know, if the university set up a system whereby uh, there were uh, everyone was responsible for their own exams and so forth and so on, do you think the system would work? Uh, 
would human nature not slip into this and mean that the system would be instantly twisted? We believe in human sin. We show it every day of our lives. Humans are not basically, doesn't mean we're entirely bad, but it does mean that when we try to make the rules, we make rules to suit ourselves and we find that these rules don't leave us with anything but a deep spiritual emptiness and a deep anxiety. This is not the biblical narrative. It's the secular narrative, and you may be living in that one. Well, we are living in it in one respect, but God calls you to live in a different narrative, a different narrative in which there is God and in which there are rules. And we come now then to the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6, if you have that passage open, and I'll be referring to a few other passages mainly from Isaiah, and I have Joanna as my reader over there, all ready to go. Um, and uh, uh, we began with reading two or three verses from Isaiah 6. Uh, and you remember, uh, we get to verse 3. Uh, uh, well, in the, in the year, we're told, the year that King, uh, the passage begins, in the year that King Isaiah died. That may not mean much to you, but Isaiah had been on the throne for over 50 years. It was like Queen Elizabeth dying last year. Uh, he had been on the phone for over 50 years. Kings in those days, unlike kings and queens now in our part of the world, uh, had real power. As, go, as went the king, so went your nation, because they were the controllers of the armies and the treasurer and all the, all the rest of it. They were the government. Uh, and King Isaiah had ruled very successfully, basically, for 60 years. You can read about his reign in Chronicles, for example. And he was a very successful king. And so people could be have their anxieties somewhat removed as, as because they were living in the in the reign of this very successful king. However, as time went on, he became more and more proud, and he put aside his trust in God and trusted in himself. And as time went on, the kingdom became more and more corrupt and more and more endangered and more and more in danger, particularly of great enemies like the Assyrians, who were a terrific military threat. Hence, when he says here, in the year King Uzziah died, it's a crucial year. It's a big year. This is the year then the king died, who had been defending them all these years. Yes, corruptly in the end. But what was going to happen now? It was a moment of deep anxiety. The king is dead. So Isaiah is in the temple, and it's the year King Isaiah died, and he has a vision. Look at his vision, verse 1. The Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, i.e., who is the king? The king of kings is the Lord. He is the true, the mighty, the majestic king who never fails, who is never corrupt, who is always there, the king whose praises we, sang, we said together and sang together just a little while ago, the king who is with us in this very room now as we, as we meet together in his name. And the hem of his robe, just the, the, the hem of his robe filled the temple. The temple was like God's palace. It was his kingly place. Uh, symbolically here in Jerusalem 
And uh, so great is God that the hem of his robe was enough to fill the entire temple. Seraphim, great angels, uh, were standing above him. They had six wings. With two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet. They were in the presence of God, you see, and they were doing the right thing. They were worshipping him appropriately. And with two they flew, and one called to each other, and uh, why don't we all say this? If you've got it open there in front of you, we can, all, we can all sing the song or say the song of the seraphim. Seraphim is plural. The seraphs, if you like, the seraphim. Have you got it there? Verse 3. Are you ready? Holy, holy. Oh, for heaven's sake. Stop, stop, stop. Come on. Sing it like seraphim. Say it like seraphim. Ready? That's it. So uh, that was their song to the great God. Now notice that first word, because that's what I really want you to notice. Thank you so much. The holiness of God, the holy, sovereign God. And here we come to that next word, the holy, the holy. Holiness. It's a strange word. We don't use it much, I don't suppose. I don't suppose. But in the Bible, the word holiness has a sort of a, a dual emphasis, if you like. It talks about... Well, it's written, <clears throat> hang on. No, it's, it's one sharp emphasis. It's the otherness, the difference. The otherness. God is other. He is not one of us. He is not uh, this sort of picture of God as one of us, but a bit bigger, a bit stronger. No, no, no. He is other than us. He's other than us in his being, and he's other than us in his righteousness. For we are a fallen, corrupt, and dependent race. Even before we fell, we were utterly dependent. God is independent. He is other than us. He is other than us in his glory and in his righteousness. He is the one. If you could say, <laughs> there is good news here. The good news is that justice is at the heart of the universe. You want justice? We all want justice. And we know that this holy God is the one who will bring all to account, and he has the right to do so. If you were in a court of law and there was a judge there uh, passing judgment on you, you would know that that judge was as fallen a human being as you. They may have the right to do so, but nonetheless, they too are fallen. They too are sinful human beings. The real judge, God himself, is not with sin at all. He is absolutely pure and upright and holy, and he will bring all to account. Good news, huh? Well, I don't see you smiling. No, there is a problem there, isn't there? If he brings all to account, that's you too. So you're glad that he is a God of justice. We want justice. But we don't want justice because we won't go well. Hmm, that's a human problem. So God is righteous. He is the one who will bring all to judgment on the day of judgment. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The other, that is God, he is other. Now turn to ourselves, turn to self. Uh, when uh, Isaiah sees uh, this great sight, uh, he, uh, something happens of great significance. Now, um, Joanna, I'm just going to ask you to read verses 4 and 5 for me, please. Is that okay? Yep. Isaiah 6, verses yes. 4 to 5. 
Correct. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So Isaiah's instant reaction when he saw the Lord was a deep sense of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the nation, the elect nation, the holy nation, the, the people of God, a deep sense of their sinfulness. Rather different, isn't it, from saying, uh, what did we hear about Australians a little while ago? We're all good people and able to make decisions for ourselves because we're quite good. A little bit different from that. Isaiah saw the truth about himself and his own people. Isaiah, the prophet, remember he's speaking at the end of Isaiah's reign when Isaiah had really led the way into corruption. Isaiah was particularly conscious of the sinfulness of God's people. In chapter 5, he, he, it's a pretty strong chapter. Uh, you'd have to read all of it, but um, we're going to read a little bit of it now just to give a sense of what Isaiah could see in his own nation amongst his own people, and it's pretty awful. I think it's, uh, we're going to read chapter 5, verses 20 to 23, I think, Joanna. Is that what I asked you to read? Yes, please. Yes. So Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 23. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. He could be living right here and now, couldn't he? The very things that are actually evil are now paraded as being wonderful. How much we admire the fabulously wealthy, for example, and don't ask how they've become fabulously wealthy. How much do we admire the uh, sexual adventurousness of, of, of uh, modern society and do not ask about the horrible corruption and the terrible consequences of this. We glory in sin and we despise righteousness. And that is exactly how he described his own people here. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They were a people who could not tell good or evil. They did not know. They confused the whole with terrible consequences. They consider themselves wise. They judge themselves clever. They're champions at pouring beer. That's a word. Who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocents of justice. He had a lot more to say about his nation, but that's enough perhaps because he's describing their human beings down through history. We are corrupt because we have rebelled against the Lord. Earlier on, as, he's, as the book begins, we have these uh, powerful words, Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read verses 2 to 4. Isaiah 
Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned their backs on him. Uh, now, most of you here are younger than me, I can tell that. And many of you here perhaps uh, have not raised children yet. Uh, but let me say as one who has raised children and whose friends have raised children, there are moments when your heart is stabbed by the children that you have raised. No one could more effectively stab you in the heart than a son or a daughter who goes off and does things that you would never allow them to do, never advise them to do. And the Lord here is saying, I have children, the people of Israel, my chosen people, and they are like children who stab you in the heart by their behaviours. That's who they are. These are the people who call good, bad and sweet is now sour and sour is sweet. These are those people. Their sin is measured by disobedience to the law of God. Chapter 5, going back there, verse 24. Thanks, Joanna. Chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore as, a, therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes straw, and a dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will become like something rotten, and their blossoms will blow away like dust. For they have rejected the instruction of the Lord of armies, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Okay. The Lord saved his people when they were slaves. He saved them from Egypt. He brought them out. He gave them his commandments, his ten commandments, his law. They were saved. They received the law of the Lord. And they despised the law of the Lord. They turned away from the word of God. For God communicates. God reveals himself. God speaks to us through the word. And they have trampled on his word. You know what it's like, perhaps, when people trample on your word when people don't listen to what you're saying, when people despise what you've said, when people judge you by words, you know what it's like. The Lord relates to his people by his word and they have disobeyed his word because of the sinfulness of their hearts. The holy God, and they have made mincemeat of his word. That is who they are. That is what they've become. They are children who despise the good word of their heavenly Father. Now that uh, picture there is of Israel, but it's a picture of humanity. Israel is the best of humanity. Israel was saved. They had the word of God. They represented the best. But in the way in which they behaved is the way in which we all behave. Our rebellion against the word of God, our rebellion against God himself. 
and yet. Turn back to chapter 6. Even though Isaiah, the minute he actually saw the Lord, is crushed, he is crushed, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. The minute he saw the king, he was crushed. And then verse 6. Verses 6 and 7. Please join us. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Can you see what's there? Can you see the miracle of that which is there? I don't know if someone has sinned against you very badly. I guess most of us have had that experience. Sinned against you so badly that you can take vengeance on them. You can say, I don't want to see you ever again. You must pay for what you've done to me. Sin that bad. A crime against you that bad. If you are prepared to forgive that person, it's as if you yourself bear the consequences of what they have done. Like the man in the parable who has owed 10,000 talents and he said to the man who owed it to him, go, I forgive you. I'll bear the cost. In forgiveness, we bear the cost of what the other person has done to us. Now in this forgiveness here that Lord says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, in this forgiveness that he gives to Isaiah, it, is, it, is, it comes, notice, symbolically, from the, 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 the stone that comes from the, the altar. For he's in the temple, the temple where sacrifices occur on the altar, where the animal is substituted for the human so that uh, the human can go free because of the death of the animal. It, seem, it seems bizarre because how can an animal take the place of a human being? But that's how God set it up in the temple. And so the stone comes, the burning coal comes from the temple, touches his lips symbolically, and he is declared to be forgiven by God through the death on the altar it's as if God has said, I am going to bear the cost of your iniquity. And I think if you know your Bible, you are already thinking of another altar shaped as a cross where God himself bore the cost of forgiveness. And that's what we're seeing in advance here. You see, being merely religious doesn't save you. You know that, don't you? They were very religious people. They hadn't stopped being religious. Have a look at chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, his critique of them there. Chapter 1, and uh, particularly uh, verses 10 to 15. Thanks, Joanna. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What are you all what are all your sacrifices to me? Ask the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams, and the fat of well fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come up here before me, who acquires this from you? The trampling of my courts. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is de- your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths, and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Here are the people of God. Here are the people who have the law of God. Here are the people who have the temple of God. Here are the people who have the sacrifices. Here are the people who... And they do them. They're forever doing them. They're very religious people. And God says, I spit on your religion. Because it's all outward show. It is not from the heart. It is when Isaiah calls out, Woe is me, for I am a person of uncleanness. It is when that occurs, when he speaks from the heart, as the Lord can see, that forgiveness comes. True repentance has to be from the heart. It is not a matter of outward ceremonial. and never be a matter of outward ceremonial. It might be good ceremonial, but it won't bring forgiveness. And indeed, he then goes on to tell us what true repentance is. Verses 16 to 20 of chapter 1. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. True repentance. Not saying here, of course, that uh, if you do these things, you will automatically be forgiven. That's just a religiosity again. But let your forgiveness come from the heart and manifest itself by these things. Turn, essentially, turn back to me and place yourself once more under my law from the heart. And though your sins are as scarlet, they will be. What great words. I hope they lifted your heart when you read them. Come, though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. What a hope. Oh, we don't need it though. Sorry, I'd forgotten. Uh, Australians are good people. That's right. We don't need forgiveness. We, we're really good. Oh, occasionally we lapse, but religion can get rid of that. If you believe that, you're an idiot. Sorry. You believe that that's so foolish, and you'll be lost. You'll be lost. What we have to see is the sinfulness of human beings and our desperate need for forgiveness. Have you ever had to forgive someone? That's the big question. Have you ever done something which really needed forgiveness, big time forgiveness? 
and it all depends upon the other person as to whether they will forgive you, and that's your only hope. You may never have been in this situation yet, but as you go on in life, you will find yourself in that situation. I can tell you, when your hope for the future depends upon the willingness of another person to forgive you, and that's a slight indication of what we all need in the presence of the Holy God who knows us for what we really are. Can he forgive us? And he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And at the heart of that, there is a cross in which he bears the sin that we may be forgiven. The task that uh, Isaiah is then given is the task of preaching to the people of Israel, preaching the word to them, telling them the truth, reminding them and summoning them back to the Lord their, their God. He finishes that chapter with a great promise. You have a look at um, the last verse in the chapter, chapter 6 now. It says, uh, the land is going to be judged, but though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth, which is a tree, or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is in the stump. Yes, Israel is going to suffer a terrible, catastrophic judgment, but God is still there. The seed is there, and therefore hope is there. It brings us to the question that we started with, namely, what is freedom? Is God free to tell lies, by the way? Do you think God's free to tell lies? I hope not, because he wouldn't be God. God cannot lie. Does that mean his freedom is curtailed somehow? Oh, God's not God, because he must be able to lie if he wants to. No, that's a false idea of freedom. That shows that our idea of freedom, reduced to choice somehow, is wrong. Freedom is, is the capacity to be the person you truly are, in God's case, or the truly, or you're meant to be in our case. Freedom doesn't mean that there are no laws, no rules. Freedom is the use of the laws and the rules to make us the pe people that we are meant to be so we like a train. Uh, a train is not free to jump the tracks and run off over the meadows. A train's true freedom is when it's on the track. Our true freedom is when we're under the law of God, under, under God himself. That is where you will discover human freedom, the freedom of forgiveness and the freedom of relationship. That's freedom. And the uh, shallowness of secular views of freedom, absolutely shallow, pathetic, damaging, because people don't understand who they are, who God is, and what true human what true human freedom uh, consists of. And so, finally, then, what is repentance? Well, repentance is recognition of our own sinfulness. It's recognition not just of, oh, I'm a sinner because I've uh, actually done this. No, no. Sin is defined by the law of God. Not defined by what you think sin is. Sin is defined by the law of God. You've got to measure yourself against God's law and recognize, for example, God's law said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. How are you doing on that exam, kid? You all right? You, you passed that one? 
You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's you. Pretty good. You must be kidding yourself. You think that's true, but that's the law. It's when you bump up against the law and you recognize that you've failed that you then say, help, I'm lost. And the law of God is measured, or, uh, sin is measured by the law of God. And as we recognize we fail it, so we turn from ourselves and we turn to the living God and we call out to God as Isaiah did for forgiveness and essential if it's going to be true repentance, we place ourselves under the rule of God. We become his servants, his slaves if you like. We submit to God. And we trust God for forgiveness. Repentance and trust or faith go together necessarily. True repentance will turn away from sin and commit yourself into the hands of God, pleading with him for forgiveness and trusting him for it. Entrusting yourself to God is true repentance. Any chance that you're a sort of outward Christian? Any chance that you go to church and mix and sing the songs and all that sort of thing, but don't actually, have never actually repented? Seen yourself for what you are and turned to God asking for forgiveness and completely submitting yourself to God? If you have never done that, you need to do that because there's nothing worse than a very religious person who's not actually repentant. For our God is a holy God and he does justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we may be deeply challenged by it and that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may hear what it is saying to us and that we may ourselves repent and turn to you for forgiveness. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you promise forgiveness even though it costs you so much, the death of your Son. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that our sins may be washed and we, even though they are scarlet, we may be washed as clean as snow. And we pray that that may be the case. And we so submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.